It is the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. You're listening to the Pacific Northwest Sports Radio Show on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. What is up? Welcome to the first episode of the Pacific Northwest Sports Radio Show brought to you by the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. I am your host, Andy Patton, repping the number one team in the country for the first time. Gonzaga is the preseason number one ranked team, according to the AP poll. Not really going to talk about them today. We got plenty of Gonzaga content coming your way, but I wanted to give them a shout out on the day that they got ranked number one. It's been a long time coming. Anyway, I am your host. You can find me on Twitter at Andy Patton PNW. And you can find the Worldwide Sports Radio Network on Twitter as well at WWSRN underscore radio. All right, today is episode one. Welcome to all of you who have tuned in. Seriously, I really, really appreciate it. This has been such a fun thing to put together. I'm really excited to finally unveil it for you all live. Today's episode is going to be a really, really fun one. I'm going to start by introducing myself. Many of you probably don't know who I am. And I want to tell you my experience, what I've written about, what I've podcasted about in the past, why you should listen to me when I talk about Pacific Northwest sports here in Oregon and Washington. After that, I'm going to bring on my first guest, Matt Zemek of USA Today's Trojans Wire. Matt has been covering college football for a very long time, and he and I are going to review the first week of the Pac-12 football season, discussing the cancellation of both the University of Washington Cal game, as well as the University of Utah and University of Arizona game, while also digging into the week one performances from Oregon against Stanford and, of course, the Oregon State-Washington State bout. After that, I'm going to dig into the Seahawks season so far, their recent acquisition of defensive end Carlos Dunlap, and of course the rather disastrous performance that we saw from them in week nine against the Buffalo Bills. My initial topic was going to be, does Dunlap make the Seahawks a Super Bowl contender? It's kind of hard to buy into that at this point right now because of what we saw against the Bills, but we're going to get all into that later in the episode, and then we're going to close the show with a handful of submitted questions, including, including a few about the Seattle Mariners. All right, so just a little bit about myself again, for those of you who do not know, uh, I've been kind of transitioning into the sports world, the sports media world, excuse me, for five or six years now, but I've been in the sports world my entire life. I, I grew up in Tualatin, Oregon, just outside of Portland, and always expected that I would be in sports. I think every job that I ever wanted to have was in sports, and I ended up, I went to Gonzaga University, as you can probably tell by the shirt and the enthusiastic uh, greeting about them being the number one team in the country to open the show. But I went there, I graduated in 2013 with a degree in physical education, went to Seattle University for my master's in sports administration and leadership, and worked at the University of Portland and at Seattle University in college athletics, specifically in academic support for student athletes, but didn't really fall in love with that and decided I wanted to work in the field of sports media. And so I, I got an opportunity to write for a fantasy sports website called Rotoballer, which is where I initially got my start. And then shortly after that, I started writing for the Seahawks Wire, a website about the or a blog about the Seattle Seahawks through USA Today Sports Media Group, working with the great Liz Matthews. I was there for just over three years, got to cover the team as a credentialed beat reporter. It was so much fun. I got to go to all the home games in 2018 and 2019 went to practices, did all that, and just had an absolute blast getting to really be a part of that world, even though it was only in a part-time role. And unfortunately, with 
the COVID-19 pandemic and everything else, it just wasn't something I was able to continue to do, but I am still with USC Trojans Wire. So the first guest that I'm bringing on is my boss, Matt Zemek. We will talk to him momentarily. But beyond my writing with USA Today, I've also done work for a website called Pitcher List, which is just an outstanding, I call them a fantasy baseball site, but they do just about everything in the in the baseball world. They write about uh, advanced analytics. They write about kind of just more generic stories about baseball. They do a lot of GIFs. They create a lot of little videos for people to watch. It's an outstanding site. I've been fortunate to be there for three years. Uh, they've been a manager for the last two years, initially managing all of the nastiest pitches that they wrote up, as well as managing the dynasty team and all things prospects for the last year. We're not done. In addition to that, I've also been a podcast host. I host the ScoreZag Score podcast through Belly Up Sports, which is how I got connected to this opportunity here. Uh, ScoreZag Score just did their 101st episode, so I crossed the centennial mark very recently. Uh, it's, again, dedicated to all things Gonzaga Bulldogs, an outstanding place to listen to that. I also co-host the Never Sunny in Seattle podcast. It is a podcast about the Seattle Mariners uh, with my good friend, Mikey Ahedo. Mikey and I have talked about, we both write a picture list. We talk a lot about advanced analytics and, and kind of the Seattle Mariners in general, usually hour-long episodes. I've had a lot of fun guests on, and I'm looking forward to having him and some of our other guests from that show on as well. So that's kind of my background. There's some other sites in there as well. I wrote for Prospects 1500. I wrote at a site called The Unafraid Show, which was run by George Reister, former NFL tight end who also played at the University of Oregon for a while and has a site that's dedicated primarily to the Pac-12. So just lots of opportunities. I thought this was such a great chance to work with the Worldwide Sports Radio Network crew and get a chance to really kind of talk about all of the different sports. So this show is going to be about Obviously, the Seahawks are going to be a huge part of it. That's a big part of my background. Pac-12 football, huge part of my background. Those are the topics for today's episode, but we're going to talk about a lot more than just that in general. The Seattle Mariners are going to be a huge part of the show. We're going to talk about their offseason, the rebuild that they're currently going through, how that's looking. Obviously, Kyle Lewis won the Rookie of the Year today, for those of you who saw that. The rebuild is happening, and it's starting, and they're off into a great spot right now, and so there's going to be a lot of fun conversations about Julio Rodriguez and Jared Kelenic and Noelvi Marte and all of the, the young studs that they have coming up through that system. Uh, we're going to talk a lot about the Portland Trailblazers, and uh, they've been a team I've followed my entire life, and I'm really excited to get a chance to kind of professionally discuss them. That's something that I have not gotten to do yet. Obviously, a team that is in a very different spot than the Mariners. They're contending now. They're ready to win. I'm looking forward to talking about their upcoming draft and what they're going to do to get this team ready to go with the season coming up in barely six weeks until the Blazers start things. But beyond that, we're going to talk Seattle Sounders, Portland Timbers, Seattle Kraken, the new hockey team out here. We're going to talk Seattle Dragons. I absolutely adored when the XFL was here in Seattle. Got to go to a few of those games before the season was shut down. So we're definitely going to talk about them as well. And then, you know, we're going to talk about Gonzaga. Obviously, we're going to talk about University of Portland, Portland State, really just every sport that's going on in Oregon and Washington. I'm going to try to find a, find at least some opportunities to get them onto the podcast the, or onto the show. The Seattle Storm, I did not mention them, but they're recent WNBA champions. Definitely want to find opportunities to talk about them as well. So the the last thing too, for those of you out there, I want this to be very interactive. Obviously, while it's live, there's, I'm limited in how much I can do, but I want to be able to elicit feedback from all of you listeners out there. So if you guys have questions, if you have suggestions, if you have kudos, whatever it is, 
uh, please feel free to reach out to me with some of that stuff as well. Uh, I do plan to try to have kind of a Q&A session at the end of every episode where you guys will submit questions, preferably throughout the week. Uh, I think that I could probably handle some live questions coming at me, but definitely if you guys have questions throughout the week, you can reach out to me at any time on Twitter at Andy Patton PNW. You can reach out on Facebook. You can reach out via email, andypatton 13 at gmail.com. Any of those places, fire off a question. I'll put it in the notes for the show, and especially if we have time towards the end of these shows, which are going to be two hours. So we're definitely going to have plenty of time to discuss those things. If you guys have questions, fire them at me, and I'm happy to try to get them in at the end of the show. All right, so we're still waiting for Matt. He's going to show up here in just a second, but I'm really excited to get to talk about the Pac-12 and everything that went down with this season. Uh, obviously, you know, I think the biggest thing was, was these games that got canceled. I, I think that's kind of the big story, unfortunately, is that there's 12 teams in the Pac-12 and we only got to see eight of them on the field for the first game of the year. So we're definitely going to talk about that. And then obviously we got to see a great game from the University of Oregon. They played really well against a subpar Stanford team. I think that at least for me, we'll, we'll definitely get Matt's take here shortly. But for me, the big takeaway was that Stanford's just maybe not that good of a team. All right, Matt is here with us now. I'm going to bring him in in just a second, and we're going to chat all things Pac-12. Matt, welcome to the show. Thank you for coming on. Hey, congratulations, Andy. This is wonderful. I'm very happy for you. Well, I really appreciate that, man. Thank you. This was a long time coming, and I'm really, really happy to get this opportunity. All right, so I introduced Matt a little bit earlier, but for those of you who missed it, Matt is the Managing Editor of USC Trojans Wire through the USA Today Sports Media Group. He has been covering college football for a long time. I'll let him tell you exactly how long, but I know he's been big into the Pac-12 and, and obviously covering that team this year. And uh, yeah, it's it's been a pretty interesting start for the Pac-12. Uh, we got eight of the 12 teams that, that suited up so far, but uh, Matt, just welcome. Thanks again. Yeah, it's a real treat. And, uh, you know, so I cover USC primarily right now. That's my job. And uh, it's one of those games where it's a win and you'd rather win than lose. But like everything else other than the win was very discouraging in terms of USC's big picture. So that, that's yeah. just one of those realities. Yeah. Why don't we start there? I kind of wanted to to rehash the USC game because it was you know, as somebody who's watched pretty much every Seahawks game for the last three years, I think I kind of got a handle on games going like this. You know, I didn't start my game. I didn't title my game recap until the very last minute, just in case. And and that's kind of what we got here it was one of those games where for so long, USC fans have been waiting for this season. You know, they, they saw how good Keaton Slovis was last year. And I think as so many people were ready for the struggles that coach Clay Helton and the staff has had in the past few years to be over. And then to see them all just flooded back in the first game, I'm sure they pulled out the win on a literal miracle, a ball that bounced off two guys hands before brew McCoy managed to haul it in for the, what was the, not quite the game winning score, but pretty close. And uh, yeah, I mean, how, how, what's the state of affairs for USC fans right now? Like it's gotta be, that's probably their toughest game, but it's got to be pretty tough to, to have kind of had to endear that for the first game of the year. Very tough. And, you know, the, the thing is, the difference between the colleges and the pros is that if you're the Seahawks, and I'm a Seahawks fan too, by the way, mm -hmm. uh, is that if you lose four times in an NFL season, that's pretty good. 12-4 mm -hmm. and four gets you probably a first-round bye. You're, you're checking the boxes if you lose four times 
in an NFL season, you don't have that same uh, leverage or leeway in in college football. Uh, even just one slip up is, is pretty substantial. So you know, you just you just the margins are smaller in the college game, and and uh, USC needed to show something. And and you know, this was a nine a.m. game, nine a.m. in Los Angeles pandemic off season there there was an awareness that this game was going to be weird and wacky uh on several levels but so the real problem for usc is the offense didn't work mm-hmm. you know the offense was a real problem the offensive line got dominated especially in the second half so you know they, they recovered an onside kick and that's a very seahawks thing uh, going yep. back to the nfc championship game against the packers um yep. if only this game had higher stakes um you know if it was like a pac-12 championship game you know that's the yeah. kind of game where if you get over the hump there then you've really accomplished something you're in a new year's six bowl the usc still has a lot of work to do so anyway the offense didn't work offensive mm-hmm. line is a huge problem the trojans clearly weren't the more physical team arizona state was and so tyler vaughn's fumbling and showing very casual ball security Keaton Slovis not zipping his passes. They really didn't uh, penetrate through the air. Uh, they, they floated. They wobbled at times. Um, and Amon Ross St. Brown didn't catch some of the 50-50 balls that we saw Michael Pittman come down with on a regular basis last season. Just the, the players you would have expected to be really sharp in this situation were not sharp. So that that is discouraging. There is kind of the optimistic way to spin that, and that is that, well, hey, if USC's best offensive players can get their act together, this could be really special. True, but the offensive line might not hmm. enable all the machinery of the offense to make it happen. So I think offensive line uh, is where the, 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 the foremost concerns lie. The defense was actually pretty solid. Couldn't have asked too much more from Todd Orlando's unit in a game one situation. Jaden Daniels of Arizona State, uh, one of the Pac-12 uh, preseason player of the year favorites, didn't even throw for 160 yards. That's an outstanding effort by USC's past events. But the fact that the offense was in position to not uh, back up the defense, you know, until the recovering an onside kick, that yeah, that's alarming. The offense really should have been much further ahead of the curve uh, in a week one situation, especially given that in the pandemic, Andy, as you know, well, the offenses have generally been ahead of the defenses. Yeah. The fact that this USC offense did not stamp itself and assert its supremacy. Yeah. That that's really discouraging. That's what was so surprising to me is we've seen so many defenses come out and look like struggle quite a bit because the pandemic seems to be favoring these offenses and you have a team that lost their best defensive player in Jay Tafeli who declared for the, or opted out to go to the MB or the NFL, excuse me. And then you had, you know, they lost Christian Rector to graduation. They lost John Houston to graduation. And you just, you're looking at a team that with a new defensive coordinator, I thought for sure that against probably the best quarterback they're going to play potentially the entire season in Jaden Daniels, I thought that defense was going to probably get diced and they didn't, they had, they held themselves pretty well. So for that to happen and then for the offense to kind of fall flat against an Arizona state defense that I think is good, but I don't think was as good as, as what we saw, like you said, Tyler Vaughn's with a very lazy fumble, Keenan Slovis not looking as sharp as he did last year, and the offensive line getting gashed was was clearly the issue here. And I would like to think that there's some reason for optimism. Certainly Vaughn's and Slovis will probably turn things around. But 
you know, is is the offensive line going to get better? You know, they, they have an injury at the center position with Brett Nealon going down. I think he'll probably be okay, I think was the report that I saw. But it's a, it's a unit that already – they lost two starters from last year. They don't have a ton of experience. A lot of the guys up, up front have barely played at all. So it's something that I have a hard time seeing this team reach the pinnacle of where they can be if that offensive line doesn't improve. Yes, and I think that offensive coordinator Graham Harrell, who didn't have a very good day, he needs to make some adjustments. And what we saw from USC's offense last year was Harrell trusted the receivers to get 50-50 balls in the air. Now, of course, that was mostly Michael Pittman, but Amon Ross St. Brown was also part of that. Tyler Vons was also part of that. They could go up and get balls at the catch point. Uh, and, you know, slow, before Slovis came in, you had uh, Matt Fink playing Utah after the injury to JT Daniels, uh, plus Slovis, you know, the USC had to go to the third string on, mm-hmm. on its uh, quarterback depth chart. And so Graham Harrell just trusted the receivers to make plays. So we didn't quite see that to the same extent. I mean, and the, the uh, Brew McCoy touchdown, the USC's third touchdown before the onside kick recovery, you know, that was a deflection. That's yeah. kind of its own in its own basket, not really an in, indic- indicative of a good play call or, you know, anything special that happened. That was just blind luck. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, the, the the jump ball strategy from last year, uh, I don't think you abandon it, but the, the adjustment I think Graham Harrell has to make is that straightforward power running on third and one, fourth and one, short yardage got stuffed. And so if you go up against a, a decent defensive line, you know, are you just going to try to keep cramming the ball between the tackles or are you going to run some jet sweeps? Mm-hmm. Are you going to do some action outside the tackles, outside the numbers, get to the boundary? Uh, you know, there, there's a need to use different angles of attack with the running game, that it can't just be student body right. And, and uh, mm-hmm. you know, the, the thing about Graham Harrell, Andy, as you know, is that he broke the mold, that right. USC didn't hire air raid um, coordinators. It didn't hire triple option, outs- anything outside the box of the traditional pro-style uh, offensive uh, formation. So Graham Harrell is already breaking the mold, and he has to continue to break the mold. He can't really conform to conventional styles or expectation. He, he needs to continue to evolve this offense the way he thinks he needs to. He can't conform to expectations. Uh, USC is going to need to stretch the field horizontally, I think, with its running game before it can then return to the straight-ahead power uh, smash-mouth style that USC fans know well. Uh, He's going to have to do some different things, open up angles, provide some different looks, in order for this USC rushing game uh, to complement the passing game the way we know it can. So you kind of touched on it a little bit, but with USC, they got Arizona in week two, a team that has not played a single game yet because they were one of the cancellations to start the year. A team that went two and seven last year was one of the worst teams in the conference. I think you can probably, you never get, never want to guarantee anything, but you can probably assume that there's going to be a win there. So for USC fans outside of going, moving up to two and oh, what do you want to see from this team to make you feel a little bit more confident that maybe they're a team that can win the Pac 12 or beat Oregon in the championship? Like, what, what are the things you, you touched on a few of them, but what are the things you want to see in this game in particular that'll make you maybe breathe a little bit easier for USC fans? Yeah, there's only so much you can learn from a game against an Arizona team that's not expected to be especially strong. But I think so you you treat the game as 
not a reflection of what, what the opponent does. It's what we do, what we can control, what we can correct and fix. And, you know, certainly with the wide receivers, with Vaughn's and Amon Ross St. Brown uh, not having their best games, you know, that's fixable. And I think it will get fixed, as a matter of fact. So the really the, the big key is the offensive line. Offensive line needs to mash the Arizona front seven. Physical, dominant, tough, consistent. Give me that. Just have that building block to come out of the Arizona game, and it will be, uh, you know, a, a good weekend for the Trojans. If they can assert themselves and really feel manly and feel, you know, hey, we can just go into the stadium and kick butt, that would be a great way to then transition to uh, the game next on the schedule, which is, you know, really, I think the key measure of this team before a possible Pac-12 title game, and that's going to Salt Lake City, a house of horrors against Utah. So establish that physical identity would be the perfect thing to carry to Salt Lake City. So, yeah, so speaking on, on Utah and Arizona and UW and Cal, for that matter, uh, kind of transitioning to games instead of talking about games that did happen, talking about games that did not happen, we found out very recently before these two games were supposed to start that the UW-Cal game was not going to happen because of positive COVID cases on Cal's roster and I believe some uh, rules within the county that Berkeley is located in that prevented them from being able to play the game in Cal and then they weren't able to travel up to Seattle to play the game here either and then of course Utah and the University of Arizona had a similar thing uh, can you just you know obviously we've been following this for a long time and, and watched other conferences start their season and heard people say that the Pac-12 is going to have an advantage for starting later which seems to not be the case at all I'm curious just kind of generic thoughts on on seeing only eight of the 12 teams get started. And if that's something that surprised you or, or where they can go from here. Well, if you're, if, if I'm speaking to the audience here, not to you, Andy, it, it, our <laughs> audience almost certainly is, is familiar with John Wilner of the San Jose Mercury news. Yeah. Uh, we had him on our Trojans wired USC podcast a few weeks ago. You know, I think the best reporter who covers the entirety of Pac-12 sports, not just the on-field stuff, but also the politics off the field. And he had a column in the Mercury News on uh, Monday morning uh, explaining these COVID-19 complexities and realities. And he, he just fle- he fleshed out the essential contradiction, Andy. And mm-hmm. that is that, uh, you know, the Pac-12 needs to display leadership, but Sometimes displaying leadership in a COVID-19 context means you allow local health officials and local authorities deal with situations on the ground because a person in Salt Lake City does not know what's best for the people of Berkeley. And the person in Seattle doesn't know what's best for people in Tucson at the University of Arizona. Different realities, different situations. So it is simultaneously responsible for the Pac-12 to let local health authorities make the decisions they feel are best. And yet that that very responsible act of allowing local health of, uh, officials to do what they think is best, it takes the power out of the Pac-12's hands. You know, the Pac-12 is delegating that authority so you don't have a, a central leadership structure in these situations you're having the local health officials in the various Pac-12 localities make the call. And so that's why that one uh, positive test at Berkeley, you know, Berkeley has a much mm-hmm. higher standard uh, than, than the other uh, Pac-12 uh, locales. So, you know, that's what led to all of this. And so that is why 
a bubble was, I think, needed for Pac-12 football. Put all 12 teams in a in a one location outside the state of California. Right. You know, it definitely had to be outside the state of California. And you 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 sequester them and you contain them and you you get through the season. And a couple of things to that need to be emphasized about this, Andy. One is with a six-game season as opposed to 12. You know, so we're not talking about four months. We're talking mm-hmm. about one and a half months. Right. You know, that seems manageable. I mean, it's it's certainly an inconvenience, but if you're going to get all the games played, get all the TV money, all the revenue, all you know, everything that goes with a season, all right, a one and a half months, mm-hmm. that that's, doesn't seem like an extraordinary commitment. It's a significant one, but not extraordinary. And the other thing is, if you're not having fans at any of the games, at any of the 12 Pac-12 uh, stadium, football stadiums, Another, that's another reason that a bubble is is doable because you're not cheating any fan base or school out of ticket sales right. or revenue. That's also why they did the 9 a.m. game because fans didn't have that fans attending mm-hmm. an, an early game. That wasn't a concern. So you experiment and you see if you can get the big TV ratings for the 9 a.m. game. So a bubble really did make sense. And it is too late to now do say that you're going to do a football bubble. You know, that just needed to be done. Uh, right after the Quidel testing announcement, uh, and that came down on uh, September 3rd or 4th, you know, th- the bubble plan should have taken root back then mm-hmm. uh, immediately. And because, and the reason why, just to make this very clear, Andy, is that because Berkeley and other California locations had much stricter COVID-19 protocols and standards than other Pac-12 locales, you needed to take the four California schools out of the state, have them relocate to a, 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 a different location. Could have been in the state of Arizona, maybe Colorado, maybe Utah, uh, you know, something centrally located, you know, and, and if not one 12-team bubble, Andy, maybe you do a Pac-12 South bubble yeah. in Phoenix. Maybe you do a Pac-12 North bubble in, um, in, in uh, well, let's say, Pullman or Spokane, uh, right. you know, something like that. So it's too late for football, but this could be done for basketball. Uh, And with the small roster sizes, middle of flu season, all the uncertainty there, boy, it really does seem that there needs to be some kind of bubble plan. And again, not necessarily every school in one location, but do some like NCAA tournament pods where you gather four teams, maybe six teams in a spot and you play a bunch of games. It's not going to be, Normal, we have to accept that it's not going to be the the normal rhythm that we have. But if you play a few, if you have like uh, six teams, maybe playing, uh, you know, like six games in the course of two weeks, uh, you know, you it would be weird. And then you might have like a couple week break, but you would be able to get the twenty games on the Pac-12 basketball schedule played. So there needs to be some creative thinking. There needs to be an awareness of how. While it's good to allow local health officials to make decisions in their communities, well, if you have a bubble, you don't have to jump through certain hoops in those localities. Take Remove the need to have that uh, worry, the, the very thing which has uh, ensnared uh, the Cal Golden Bear football program right now. Well, it's funny because you look at what happened with the NBA and you look at what happened with the MLS and they had these successful bubbles like they went very well. It wasn't perfect, but it was pretty close. It was about as close to perfect as you were going to get. 
And I know the WCC is discussing potentially doing a kind of bubble thing in Las Vegas. I don't know if that's going to happen. Obviously, there are other complications with just doing this for certain schools that may not be doing all remote learning and everything that goes with with that. But it's something that it's surprising to me that the pack, maybe they did consider it for football. I don't know. Uh, I don't want to rule out that that was something they thought about, but it's obviously not something that they decided to do. And I'm curious if you have any thoughts why they didn't like, you know, like you, you, the same things you talked about as to why it makes sense. Like what, what were the reasons that they opted to try to go this way and force all these teams to adhere to different rules? Well, this gets to a, a an issue that's beyond the PAC 12, Andy. And that is that if anyone in college sports said we need to have a bubble like a professional sports league, right. such as the NBA or NHL, you get into if not a direct admission an implied admission that these are essential workers mm-hmm. and that we are asking these players to, to do, you know, a, a lot of work in service of a billion dollar industry. You get into all of those kinds of questions. And this is where the dishonesty really lies because we heard all spring and summer, Andy, that we had to have regular students attending mm-hmm. classes on campus in order for football to happen. And then as soon as the COVID mechanics changed, and then it was it was discovered that, oh, we can just have online learning and the players right. are relatively safe, not airtight, but they're relatively safe if you put them on an isolated campus. Huh, that talking point about having to have uh, regular students on attending classes on campus, that funny how that faded away so right. very quickly. <laughs> And so, you're, you're, you know, and let's remember also, Andy, that we haven't given we the college sports community hasn't given these athletes hazard pay yet. Right. I mean, that, you know, that should have been done right away yep. because we are treating them as essential workers. We are asking them to play in a pandemic to prop up a billion dollar business. Mm-hmm. We should be giving them hazard pay. And we haven't. So why haven't bubbles occurred? It's because of all these kinds of interrelated questions that the, the leaders of college sports and it's not really the NCA so much as it's as the schools, you know, because the schools are happy with the arrangement they have right. under the NCA. We need to be very clear about that because university presidents and chancellors are OK with the current arrangement. And they're not willing to be honest about uh, how outmoded the concept of amateurism is It's because of all those things that we haven't had bubbles in college sports. You'd really think that now, of all things, would be the time when they would start getting ready to have that conversation, but apparently they are not there yet. All right, we're going to take a quick break. When we return, Matt and I are going to continue discussing the Pac-12. We're going to talk about Oregon's win over Stanford and the first Pac-12 After Dark special of the year between Washington State and Oregon State. Stay tuned. It's the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. You're listening to the Pacific Northwest Sports Radio Show on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. All right, folks, welcome back. Still here with Matt Zemek from Trojans Wire, still talking Pac-12 Week 1 football. We're going to get into some of the games that did happen, starting with the Oregon-Stanford game. Ducks rolled through the Cardinal 38 to 14. Uh, I was saying right before you came on, Matt, that I thought that 
I was curious whether you were going to think this game was more an, ind an indication of how good Oregon is or perhaps just how not good Stanford is. They obviously had a rough year last year. They were missing their quarterback in this game, which clearly was a very last minute thing that I think probably threw a pretty big wrench in their game plan as well. Uh, just what were your general thoughts on, on this contest? Yeah, so in terms of whether it's a verdict on Oregon or Stanford, I think it's pretty much a 50-50 call. Mm -hmm. uh, I would say that, you know, Oregon has, you know, Mario Cristobal has top five classes rolling into Eugene now. He has that program, at, you know, at an elite level. That's, you know, so we can be confident that Oregon being solid, you know, that that's going to happen. That's going to be the case Ducks are going to be good this year. Maybe not, maybe not stupendous, but they're going to be very good. Mm -hmm. uh, Stanford is the bigger mystery because David Shaw clearly has lost his fastball <laughs> from the run from 2011 through 2017 when Stanford was, you know, annually it was always going to be in the mix uh, in the Pac-12 North. It's it's different now, you know, because because Washington under Chris Peterson came in and then now Cristobal at Oregon. You know, that is the power center. Justin Wilcox is now the Bay Area uh, yeah. spoiler. Um, and so Stanford really is at best the fourth best team in the North. So it's really very different from the the 2011 through 2017, really or 2015 period when Stanford was the king of the pack. Uh, it's very different now. So, I mean, Stanford's staying power is eroding. And, and so we need to see how good Stanford is. Uh, to get like a better measurement of what this game means for Oregon. Uh, but, uh, you know, Oregon, I think, for, for a first game with Tyler Shuck, uh, you know, a new quarterback coming in after Justin Herbert, uh, you know, all the pieces probably weren't going to fit together seamlessly. So the fact that Oregon, after a sluggish, you know, first 10, 15 minutes, just gradually got stronger, more self-assured, more confident, gained more of a rhythm as the, as the game went on, you know, that's a good progression for Oregon that, you know, the early, the, the sluggish start didn't freak anybody out. There was no sense of panic. It was just on to the next play. And so that that's the maturity, not just of a 2020 team, but of a program that has a good sense of identity about itself. Uh, that, that was very impressive to see about Oregon. And it's something that you would expect from a program that views itself as elite and, and Oregon is that. Yeah. I think a big part of their identity in this game certainly was on the ground. Uh, they ran the ball a lot and Shuck did well when he threw the ball, he completed 17 passes on 26 attempts, 227 yards isn't phenomenal, but he also added 85 yards on the ground, including a touchdown. CJ Verdell had 20 carries for 105 yards. I mean, this was a team that was really willing to just put the ball on the ground and get things done. And, and that's not what we've always seen from them. Obviously, Herbert was a phenomenal arm. He wasn't as mobile. So I think they did a lot more passing with that team. It seems like this was maybe a bit of a shift to running the ball a little bit more. I'm curious if you think that's a product of having a different quarterback, a product of just game planning against a Stanford defense that clearly was struggling to stop the run, or if there was maybe more to it than that. Well, I think we have to look at the new offensive coordinator in Eugene, Joe Moorhead. Uh, and he's remember he's the, he's the Saquon whisperer, right? He's the guy who came into Penn state when James Franklin was on the verge of getting fired. That program was going nowhere. But then he came in and he made he helped Saquon Barkley to fully realize his potential. He also developed Trace McSorley 
as the quarterback of that offense. Penn State was not doing much of anything on offense, and yet Moorhead comes in and Penn State engages USC in a 52-49 Rose Bowl shootout, one of the best Rose Bowls of all time. So Moorhead's credentials as an offensive mastermind are, are substantial. And if you talk to people in Eugene, they will tell you, and I fully agree with this, that Marcus Arroyo, the offensive coordinator last year, mm-hmm. uh, who's now the head coach at UNLV, you know, that he uh, was the biggest uh, opponent of Justin Herbert in the sense that he limited Herbert's productivity. Uh, we would have seen so much more from Herbert if he ever had a chance to work with Joe Moorhead. Because um, with a, with Arroyo, if you remember last year, yeah, there were plenty of passing, but it was horizontal passing, yeah. very short passing, lots of screens, lots and lots of screens, working the, the short flats. Uh, so it was uh, a, a, lots of passing, but not the passing which showcased Herbert's arm. You know, and we've been able to see Herbert's arm with the Chargers this year. You know, that's not what he was doing at, no. at Oregon. That was it was a lot of dinks and dunks. So with Moorhead, you know, there is, I think, a commitment to protect Shuck, his quarterback, in his first season in these early games by establishing the run, not being too adventurous. But I think as soon as Shuck gets uh, more experience, more stat, more snaps, more reps, uh, more exposure, you know, you're going to see Moorhead open up the offense. The other thing we have to keep in mind, Andy, is that uh, Oregon's schedule is backloaded. That yeah. Cal and Washington, the two foremost threats to the Ducks in the Pac-12 North, they come at the end. So Moorhead has a chance to just establish the basics now against the softer part of the Pac-12 North and then slowly build to Cal and Washington. That's when you're going to see the playbook, I think, really open up. And you're going to see Shuck throwing a lot of vertical strikes uh, to his receivers uh, you know, a lot of the time on play action because defenses are going to be loading the box and they're going to be expecting the run. So I think I think that's the larger architecture of what Joe Moorhead wants to do this season. And and knowing what he did with Barkley and McSorley at Penn State, good chance it's going to work out for Oregon. And and the Ducks really gained on Washington mm-hmm. uh, with the two offensive coordinator hires. You know, Washington hiring John Donovan, who's Resume is very sparse, uh, and uh, if you you know this, uh, working with me at Trojans Wire, yeah. my bold prediction for the 2020 Pac-12 season is that Washington's offense is going to really suffer, and Jimmy Lake is going to fire John Donovan <laughs> at the end of this season. It's going to be kind of like a Bo Pelini situation at LSU. I don't think he's going to uh, coach into 2021 under Ed Orgeron, you know, that, that marriage has been bad. And I think you're going to see the Washington coordinator coach coordinator relationship also go bad this year. And you know what? Husky fans hope that happens because the Huskies are probably going to need a Cadillac coordinator uh, on akin to what Oregon has with Joe Moorhead. Well, especially with like a not situated quarterback spot with them right now and kind of dealing with that. Like you want an offensive coordinator who's going to, figure out what to do with that quarterback. And if you just kind of burn a year and you get somebody else in, it just sets them back uh, a long time. So I, that's, I was going to kind of just ask you a little bit more about UW since we didn't get to see them play, obviously, uh, and they have a new coach and they're kind of a program that I think is 
very up in the air with what they're going to look like with, you know, Jimmy Lake, obviously been at UW for a while. He's an established guy, but Chris Peterson was such a, a well-known coach and did so many great things with the university of Washington. And obviously we got your thoughts uh, certainly on the offense and what that's going to look like there. But do you see this being a team that takes a pretty significant step back? Do you think there's some room for optimism, at least on the defensive side of the ball that might keep them in a few more games? Well, here's the thing, Andy, with the COVID-19 cancellation of the Cal game, yeah. you know, I was penciling that game in as a loss Yeah, because the Huskies, as you know, scored only one touchdown in each of their last two games against Cal, and now their quarterback situation was markedly worse than anything they had in 2018 and 2019 with an unproven coordinator. I mean, that game was lining up to be a loss, so now they don't have it, and mm -hmm. now they get to play – their first game against Oregon State, which was really disappointing yeah. against Washington State. So, you know, if, if we're just calculating Washington's Pac-12 North title odds mm -hmm. based on the past week and avoiding that Cal game, those odds have gone up. Yeah. I mean, now <laughs> you still have to go through Oregon, of course, and the Ducks are obviously uh, the favorite in that division. But mm -hmm. as far as it goes, not playing Cal – that, I mean, just strictly in terms of wins and losses, Andy, that's a plus for UW. Absolutely. So we talked about a bit of a defensive team. Obviously, we'll switch to the Oregon State-Washington State game, which was not very defensive, finished with the score of 38-28 to in favor of Nick Rolovich's Cougars in his first game with that team. Uh, yeah, I think you kind of already touched on it a little bit, but it was pretty disappointing uh, game from from the Oregon State Beavers with their new quarterback who who looked pretty good. I don't think it was his issue, certainly in that game, but the defense just got gashed for most of the game. Uh, they struggled to stop the run. Deion McIntosh for Washington State ran for 147 yards on 18 carries. That was hugely problematic for the Beavers. Washington State was also playing with without a handful of their guys. We don't, I think 32 is what Rolovich said because of COVID, although he was very uh, unwilling to admit that that was the reason why. Uh, but obviously a, a team that looks quite a bit different, uh, the Cougars, in the sense that, I, like I just said, they had a guy run for 147 yards. I didn't look it up, but I got to imagine it's been a while <laughs> since that happened because of Mike Leach's very, very pass-heavy offense. And the fact that it wasn't Max Borgie who was out with an injury, was very surprising to me. Uh, I'm curious, just again, Oregon State, I think there was certainly some expectations for this team to maybe take a step forward. Uh, they they looked good on the ground. Jamar Jefferson had 120 yards, solid game for him. But And I think Tristan Gebbia looks pretty solid. I mean, he threw for 329 yards and a touchdown. That's pretty darn good for his first game against uh, admittedly not great Washington State defense, but uh, with these two teams, two teams that have kind of been in the shadow of their uh, respective state schools in Oregon and Washington, I'm curious just kind of your thoughts on, on that game and if there's any part of these teams that you're excited about going forward. Well, you know, one thing to uh, reflect on is that, and let's just briefly mention it, Iowa. I mean, not, not a Pac-12 team, but I'm going to say, I'm going to fit that into this conversation in just a second. But you know that Kirk Ferentz, had the the horrible offseason, you know, lots mm -hmm. of internal 
rumblings of his program, you know, former players saying that it was not a good environment, very toxic right. uh, in terms of uh, the, you know, the environment created for b- black players wasn't very welcoming mm-hmm. and we've seen Iowa struggle. Now Iowa beat uh, Michigan state, but uh, the Hawkeyes lost their first two games, both very winnable games. You know, I was not in a very good place right now. So I thought that Washington state to now move back into the PAC 12 mm-hmm. and the, the topic of conversation you brought up, uh, you know, Nick Rolovich had some very uncomfortable moments with players in the off season. Several other coaches did. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, there were lots of questions in terms of how transparent, how fair he was being with players uh, over various issues. So for that reason, not just the fact that Rolovich was inheriting a new program uh, and, and, and having to start over a quarterback, uh, I thought that Washington State was really going to struggle this year. So obviously mm-hmm. the performance at Oregon State on Saturday night was a big surprise. Uh, and it's a lot like the USC Arizona State game that, you know, I thought that the uh, more talented team would impose itself, mm-hmm. but that's certainly not what happened at all. Washington State punched Oregon State in the teeth. And so if you're if you're an Oregon State fan, you're thinking, okay, this was the game we were supposed to win. I mean, th- think about all the other games on the schedule. This is the one we really figured to win and we figured to win it big. And so for the Oregon State to not answer the bell, that really has to be disappointing. And it's not just the loss itself, though, of course, that's pretty significant. It's the fact that Washington State got a 28-7 lead. I mean, Washington State was just all over the Beavers in the first half of this game. So, you know, Oregon State had this long off season and we need to make a point where a program on the rise, you'd, you'd figure the Beavers would come out of the gate really strong, just you're spitting nails, and instead they got dominated. So in other words, this wasn't a game where it was a 50-50 game the whole way, and then there was this crazy sequence or a bad call or something like that, which you know tilted the, the equation to Washington State. No, this was Washington State was in control the whole way. And so, you know, what Tristan Gebbia did, it was solid and it was workmanlike and it was competent. But it was done while trailing uh, by multiple scores pretty much the whole way. So it's really hard to place too much positive weight on his uh, nice-looking stat line. Uh, Oregon State just got its its head handed to him on a platter. And, and that's really the disappointing part, that Oregon State just wasn't ready at the start of this game. I don't know what you say or think if you're Jonathan Smith. It wasn't supposed to be like this. That's what I was led right into it perfectly. That's what I was going to say. If you're a Beavers fan right now and you're looking at Jonathan Jonathan Smith, you know, a guy who was a star quarterback for your team, you know, 20 years ago or so and has been the coach for a couple of years and they appear to be on the rise. But this this was a poor game plan. It appeared to me at least. And they I mean, they got punched in the mouth, like you said, right off the bat against what should have been one of their easier games. I mean, there's a reasonable expectation they finished this year with less than two wins, less than one win, potentially. Uh, that would obviously be worst case scenario. But I mean, how much leash does he have at this point? I think he's hasn't been there all that long. But I mean, this team is just begging for somebody to push them over the top. And they just haven't been there in such a long time. Yeah. So here's the thing, you know, here's, well, the thing, there are several things about pandemic football, and especially right. in the Pac-12, where we're only going to play six or seven games, if that. Right. Uh, and that is that uh, you know, a lot of in a normal season, a lot of bowl teams and power five conferences, they go two and six uh, or or in the pac 12s case with nine conference games, three and six. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they load up on cupcakes and are able to get to six and six 
and get to a bowl game. So, you know, this year you don't have those non-conference cupcakes uh, to make the record seem a little right. better. It's all conference competition. And now with the shortened season, you know, you get very few chances to prove yourself. So it's going to look really bad when Oregon yeah. State goes one and five. I mean, that's right. what we're looking at right here. And so, but, but the, the, the kind of the thing that needs to be kept in perspective is that Oregon State won't have a chance to get three non-conference wins with smart scheduling against schools. It can be, you know, a game against Portland State, right. you know, get that one FCS game. And then, if, uh, you know, games in the, the lower end of the Mountain West, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the, those options are not available. So it, it, it takes a, a, in that those clever maneuvers that Power 5 schools can use to make their record look better. They aren't available this year. So in terms of Jonathan Smith's situation, uh, you know, he's going to get time there. And I think with the pandemic and the, the limitations on uh, school budgets that he'll, he'll, he will coach through 2022, but what this kind of a game does, uh, it's kind of a slower timetable version of what Jim Harbaugh is going through at Michigan right now. Mm-hmm. I mean, Harbaugh's struggles this year, put him on the hot seat for 2021. That's right. why that's, that's the Michigan situation. So I think with Smith, you know, if he, you know, burns the house down here with a lot of really ugly losses to teams he should be doing better against, I think that that creates a situation where 2022 will be a hot seat season for him. Uh, not, not, and, you know, 2021 will kind of be, you know, the, the, the chance for him to rescue himself and solidify his standing. But if 2021 is not especially strong if it's if it leaves anything to question then 2022 will be a year where osu brass is probably going to say hey you gotta really show us something so he's kind of digging he's not digging his grave immediately but for like a two-year window it's making it harder for him uh to to stay there long term before we pivot away from this game, I want to talk about Washington State's quarterback, Jaden Delora. He was a true freshman. He was the freshman Pac-12 player of the week. Uh, he, you know, I don't think he's Gardner Minshew. I don't think he's Anthony Gordon. You know, certainly he's in a, in a very different offense uh, without Mike Leach there. So we didn't see the gaudy numbers that you would expect. He only threw for 227 yards. Granted, they were up big, so they were running the ball a lot, like we discussed earlier. So we may, might see those numbers come up. But is he a guy that, I, we, you know, Washington State's put their last two quarterbacks in the NFL. Is he a guy that you think has some kind of legitimate potential here? Were you impressed by his performance? Was it chalking it up more to the Beavers not being ready for this game? Uh, you know, the, the 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 main thing is that he didn't uh, get in his own way. He didn't step mm-hmm. on a rake. Uh, I think of Tua Tagovailoa. Mm-hmm. I mean, not that they're the same player. Right. I'm, I'm thinking about Tua Tagovailoa with the Dolphins. Uh, I mean, Tua was more impressive against the Cardinals, but a week ago against the Rams, it was noticeable that Jared Goff was the guy who was making all the mistakes. And Tua, mm-hmm. didn't, Tua made a, committed one early fumble, but then played a clean game. Not a dominant game, but a clean game. And so I'm, that's kind of the parallel with Washington State's uh, quarterback play against Oregon State. If the running game was working, you know, just don't mess it up. Right. And, and sometimes, you know, we were so insistent on big stats, Andy, that mm-hmm. we don't give enough appreciation to just getting out of the way yeah. and, and letting things happen. And then that's what we saw. So that's very encouraging. It was a road game, night game. So that that is a solid start uh, for, for Washington State's offense. 
And I think that Nick Rolovich, he knows what he's doing. He did really well at, at Hawaii. And the thing to emphasize about Hawaii is that that's a program with a shoestring budget. Mm-hmm. And Rolovich took on that job and he made the best of it. I you know, just in terms of X's and O's, his, you know, his Rick, Nick Rolovich's politics and his media savvy leave a lot to be desired, sure. <laughs> uh, you know, in terms of COVID-19 and the offseason uh, scrapes with players, which was pretty ugly for a period of time. And so those are concerns and they shouldn't be dismissed. But ju- just in terms of X's and O's, Rolovich is really sharp. And that that is going to help Washington State's quarterback play. And of course, uh, in terms of uh, a Pacific Northwest flavor and a Washington Husky flavor, it's going to be fascinating to see if Nick Rolovich can change the dynamic from Mike Leach, you know, who was just uh, he who was Jimmy Lake's sheepdog, you know, just just completely owned. (laughs) Uh, in in, especially in snow (laughs) and uh, inclement weather conditions. We'll see if Rolovich can change that dynamic in the Apple Cup. That that that's going to tell me something about where Washington State and its offense are headed. Well, at least with Washington State, they have a coach who seems to have the um, X's and O's down really well because the political issues and the COVID issues and the issues with players seem to be uh, reminiscent of their previous coach. It doesn't seem like they have <laughs> moved that far away from from that spectrum there with with Rolovich. I've heard a few of his. Uh, his interviews and press conferences and thought, wow, this, the media out there is kind of getting a lot of the same stuff that they were getting before, which is uh, unfortunate for them. But if it, if it leads to more wins, I'm sure the Cougar fans will be, will be happy. All right. uh, Moving on a couple of quick questions. Uh, I know the answer is a lot of what you're going to say because we wrote articles at Trojans Wire discussing some of our predictions for the Pac-12, but I'm sure that listeners would love to hear your thoughts as somebody who has followed this conference very closely. Uh, Pac-12 player of the year for offense and defense. I'm curious just who you think. You know, we know we've heard a lot about Slovis, obviously. Uh, for for offense, Jaden Daniels looked really good. Uh, we got to see them head-to-head. It was a weird game, as we already discussed. But those two guys for offensive player of the year, at least in my head, I'm curious if you have other contenders or what you thought about those two guys having seen them head-to-head. Yeah, so I think in terms of a Pac-12 player of the year, I think that the geography of the award shifted from south to north. Mm-hmm. So I think uh, we, we went into the year thinking that Slovis, Keaton Slovis or Jaden Daniels would be yeah. right up there. But I think after this game, neither one made an especially strong mm-hmm. statement. And I think Daniels basically eliminated himself given how short this season is. You know, he doesn't have 10 games to compensate. Right. He only has five. So it's going to be hard to recover from a difficult early season performance. So I think that the – I don't have a specific player in mind, but I just think that it, the geography of the ward probably went north. I think an Oregon Duck – could be Tyler Shuck, could be C.J. Verdell uh, – are much more likely to be Pac-12 player of the year now after that uh, very uneven USC-Arizona State game, a game in which the winning team was outplayed by the losing team. Right. So I think that the winner of the the, the award is going to go be from the north. I entered the year thinking it was going to be Slovis and that Daniels had a chance to upstage him. But the way that Arizona State-USC game played out didn't work in favor of either man from the Pac-12 South. Yeah, I have a feeling that your defensive player of the year is probably going to come from the same team you think that your offensive player is going to come from uh, with the Oregon Ducks. But do you have thoughts on, on that award as well? Yeah, so not a not a not a specific player, but you know Oregon's defense I think is going to be better than any other defense in the Pac-12. And and here's the other thing: 
Cal not playing Washington, you know, mm-hmm. Chase Garbers gets gets hurt there on the offensive side of the ball, but also Cal's defense didn't get a chance to have a, you know, what I expected to be a shutdown game right. against Washington's uh, uh, unknown offense. So that, that just even more puts uh, Oregon in position to swipe both the offensive and defensive players of the year. I mean, Oregon has elite talent at all three layers of its defense on the line, linebackers, secondary against Stanford. I don't know if we can say, you know, one, one player was, was, uh, you, you know, catapulted right to the head of the line. Uh, but, but there are plenty of players to choose from. So I do think that Oregon is really in position to now sweep the hardware in the pac 12 given the struggles of USC and ASU and given Cal not being able to play Washington with possible. And, and, you know, if they're, if a Cal can't play a second game so that you have only four games for the golden bears, you know, what's left, what is left on the table? It's, it's, I think it's going to be an all Oregon pac 12 year. Yeah. So that, I mean, you you leaned into it a little bit, but I'm guessing that your prediction for the PAC 12 champion will likely be the Oregon ducks. If it's them, or even if it's somebody else, if USC manages to pull off an upset in that game or Arizona state somehow pulls it off. uh, Do you think that any team going undefeated in this abbreviated season for the PAC 12 has a chance at playing in the college football playoff at all? Or do you think that ship has sailed with, already an abbreviated season and of course four of the teams not playing in their first game yeah well so i don't think the ship has sailed but it's in the harbor and it's sure. getting ready uh it's just because we still have half a season left and maybe some crate happen and i think one of those like clemson losing a couple more games uh, you know would it be the most incredible thing in the world in a pandemic not really Clem- yeah. and clemson barely beat boston college you know, who knows what's going to happen. I mean, you wouldn't expect it, but, it you know, it's within the realm of possibility. And then let's say Florida beats Alabama in the SEC title game. You know, Florida could put up 40 points against Alabama. Uh, Alabama's defense gave up 48 to Ole Miss. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's certainly conceivable. You wouldn't expect it, but it's conceivable. So if several crazy things happen, UCF beating Cincinnati, for instance, right. later this year to remove the Bearcats from the college football playoff picture. You know, you just, if several dominoes do fall, it's still within the realm of possibility. But, you know, one thing we all agreed on what in covering the Pac-12 was that if or if there was going to be a playoff team at 7-0, and it had to be a team that beat a strong right. 6-0 and opponent in the Pac-12 championship game. Uh, first off, is USC going to get to 6-0? and I would doubt it. The Trojans are probably going to slip on a banana peel at some point. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the second thing is that even if USC does go 6-0, and Trojans might not look that great doing it. Right. Because who, el- who else is going to be especially strong uh, in the Pac-12 South? And, and uh, USC's crossover game is against Washington State. So USC could be 6-0 and and still not have proven anything. So the fact that USC wasn't very impressive against one of the better opponents on its schedule, that right there is going to undercut the Pac-12's playoff argument uh, if we're talking about 7-0 USC or 7-0 Oregon. One more before I let you go, Matt. Uh, because It's 2020. It's a weird year. We're in the middle of a pandemic. It seems like the impossible or the very unexpected could happen. I'm curious – thoughts on like a BYU or a Cincinnati or some of those teams that have been historically ignored by the college football playoff selection committee 
if they have a chance because of that kind of wonkiness, you know, if an Oregon team does lose or, yeah, I mean, is there a chance that this BYU team or this Cincinnati team or even other potentially unexpected teams could sneak in this year? Yeah. So there's a chance that's really similar to the last question. I hate to give a kind yeah. of a, you know, standard answer, but it, it really is the case that they're in the mix. Yeah. You know, they are in the mix. They are in the conversation. We can acknowledge that, but they need several dominoes to fall in front of them, you know, and, and, and BYU and Cincinnati were really hurt by Notre Dame beating Clemson because that opens the door for Notre Dame and Clemson to give the ACC two teams. Uh, you know, if, if Clemson wins the rematch with Trevor Lawrence, you know, you have Notre Dame over here with the win over Clemson in a classic game, NBC, you know, everyone was glued to it, you know, wanting to get to Dave Chappelle on Saturday night live. Uh, and then you, you'll can, you can have in December, Trevor Lawrence riding to the rescue, winning the rematch. So that, that bodes well for both Notre Dame and Clemson. Notre Dame has the resume win. Clemson loses just once, got revenge conference champion. It's all lining up for the ACC to have two teams. So BYU and Cincinnati, well, so again, they're going to need Florida to beat Alabama uh, in the SEC championship game, and preferably after Florida stubs its toe a second time. Right. I mean, Florida would still make win the East and play Alabama because it has the head-to-head over Georgia. Mm-hmm. So Florida losing to Arkansas this Saturday, for instance, then beating Alabama in the SEC title game, Notre Dame or Clemson slipping up once more before they might play in the ACC championship game. Uh, you know, those kinds of things are going to need to happen for BYU and Cincinnati to get in. But if those things do happen, doors open. Matt, thank you so much for taking the time on a Monday evening to jump on episode one of the show. I sincerely appreciate your expertise on the PAC 12 and hope that we can have conversations about this again going forward. Andy, thanks for having me on, and congratulations. All success to you with this show. I know you're going to do great. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. All right. We will be right back, and I'm going to, after we take a quick break, I'm going to come back and dive into the Seahawks' disastrous 44-34 loss to the Buffalo Bills in Week 9 right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. You're listening to the Pacific Northwest Sports Radio Show on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. All right. Welcome back. I'm not going to lie to you. I wish that my first show, I got to talk about a more fun Seahawks game than the game that I get to talk about today. I set up all my notes to talk about whether the Seahawks were Super Bowl contenders now that they have Carlos Dunlap in the mix. And Dunlap looked great. I think that's something that we can take away from this game. But when you give up 44 points to the Buffalo Bills, an admittedly good Buffalo Bills team, I don't want to disparage them and Josh Allen, who looked phenomenal. But when you give up 44 points to anybody in the NFL, I think that you have to – the Super Bowl aspirations are a tough tough pill to continue to swallow for Seahawks fans at this point. And if this was a one-off thing where the defense just had a really bad game and maybe travel got to them or – something like that, they, they were just really beat up, then I think you could maybe swallow it a little bit more for Seahawks fans. But w- what happened instead is years, literal years, culminating of this team's defense being below average, at points considerably below average. This season, not only below average, but elite levels of bad, like record-setting bad. 
when that all culminates in a disastrous performance like we saw against the Bills, it's it's really, really hard for fans to still think of this team as a potential Super Bowl team with or without an elite pass rusher like Carlos Dunlap. So we just talk about the game here a little bit. I think what we saw, we saw a defense that was not playing. Uh, they had injuries. We, we can talk about that. Obviously, Shaquille Griffin did not suit up. That was a big loss. Quentin Dunbar did suit up, but was very clearly not 100%. When both your corners are not playing at the level that they're capable of playing of, and we know that Seattle's depth at the defensive back is pretty rough, it sets up a situation kind of like what we saw in this game. But beyond that, they played this really soft coverage. You know, We'll talk about Ken Norton a little bit later, (laughs) and some of your thoughts on him, I can imagine, are pretty strong. But it wasn't a good game plan. I think it's very obvious that when you play a team and you get as many sacks as the Seahawks got, I think they got seven sacks in this game, which is incredible. You get seven sacks in a game. You give up 30 rushing yards to a team that has Devin Singletary. They have Zach Moss. They have good running backs. You give up 30 rushing yards. You get the seven sacks. They had 12 sacks like the last two years combined. (laughs) Not quite, but they had 12 sacks coming into the season excuse me, this season coming into this game, and then they got seven in one game, give up 30 yards on the ground, but get just absolutely gashed by short yardage plays from Josh Allen. I mean, there were so many plays, you guys watched the game, where Allen threw the ball four or five yards down the field, which should be a pretty kind of cut and dry basic completion and then immediate tackle. And the video camera, it doesn't look like there's anybody near him. (laughs) The guy catches, whether it's Stephon Diggs or John Brown or Cole Beasley or whomever, they were just uncovered completely. It seemed like there was breakdowns in coverage, and potentially that was just with having new guys out there and not having that familiarity with each other. But there was also just a, a clear game plan to allow these kind of – to play soft coverage, to allow these easy receptions with four or five yards away. And what's frustrating, what I would imagine is frustrating for you and what's frustrating for me is seeing this game plan that has not worked in the past. Do you guys remember the Seahawks-Falcons game last year? If you don't, if you would like a memory of that game, the Seahawks won 27 to 20 against an Atlanta team that was that went to one and seven after that game. The Seahawks moved to six and two. But Matt Schaub, Atlanta's backup quarterback, longtime veteran, guy that most people, including half the people sitting around me in the media room, were not aware was still in the NFL. Matt Schaub threw 52 passes. He completed 39 of them for 460 yards. It was an absolutely ridiculous performance. And yes, a lot of them were dink and dunks. Devonta Freeman had eight catches in that game for 63 yards, just little dunk offs. Russell Gage had seven catches for 58 yards in that game. But Julio Jones also crushed them with 10 receptions for 152 yards. And Calvin Ridley had four for 70. You get the picture. (laughs) So what happened in that game is they played a lot of soft coverage. Atlanta was able to move the ball efficiently by just gaining short yardage. And then they could take shots. They could take shots down the field with Jones or Ridley or with Austin Hooper. And because the reason they could take those shots is because they knew, oh, well, now it's, you know, it's second and four. We're going to take a deep shot or we're not going to get it. Third and four, we'll just do a dump off to Freeman, get the first down. Boom, easy peasy. We saw that nearly, nearly cost the Seahawks a win against a bad Atlanta team. That didn't really change Seattle's game plan. And last year they had some issues in their secondary. They had some injuries that piled up. I understand it. but th- And this year, similar situation without Shaquille Griffin, who was a pro bowler last year, very, very talented guy. It causes some issues. I understand that. But to run a similar set against – this isn't Jimmy Garoppolo. 
You know, this wasn't Nick Mullins that they were playing when they beat San Francisco the week before. This was Josh Allen, a guy who through the first four weeks of the season was a legitimate candidate for MVP. He might be back in that conversation now. He had a phenomenal game. He threw for 415 yards and three touchdowns. I don't remember him making a mistake at all. He got sacked a few times, and some of them maybe he could have escaped, but a lot of them were just the Seahawks finally generating some pressure. A lot of them came late in the game when the when Buffalo's offensive line was probably just straight up exhausted from having to pass protect the entire game because they hardly ran the ball at all. It was just one of those things where it's like we've seen this happen. You know, again, if this was a first-time thing, I know Seahawks fans would would still be struggling with losing to a in a season where you're trying to lose two or three games at most. You know, it's tough to lose a game like this, even against a good team. But to lose it in a way that's felt predictable, you know, to lose it in a way where the defense, which has been bad all year, was just bad again and was running personnel and running a scheme that just didn't seem to fit the players that they had and was not working. They tried to make some adjustments. They generated more pressure in the second half, which was good and welcome and necessary. Seattle did try to attempt a comeback. The let Russ cook in the fourth quarter nearly brought them back, but it was just too much. Now, I want to touch on a few other things before we go too far down this rabbit hole. There was some, it wasn't all the defense's fault. For starters, they had four turnovers on offense, all four of them by Russell Wilson. I'm not going to be nearly as critical of Russell as some other people (laughs) in the Seattle media landscape have been, because I think that the majority of those turnovers were not his fault. The interception in the end zone was bad. There's, There's not really any other way to put it. He just needed to put that ball a little bit higher, and he didn't put it high enough, and Poyer got up there and picked it off. And then his other interception was frankly pretty bad too, and that one really crushed the Seahawks defense. You say they gave up 44 points, sure, but that one, I mean, come on, they made an interception and they got within easily within the red zone for that score. So that's hard for any defense to try to make a stop at that point. And then you have your two fumbles. Russ is very was very uncharacteristic in losing the ball in this game, but both those fumbles were not really his fault. His offensive line didn't do what it's been doing all year, which has protect him pretty well. You know, they're not elite. They're not going to be confused with some of the elite offensive lines of this era, but they, they looked pretty good. They did. They've done decent stuff up to this point. And in this game, it just wasn't there. Buffalo had a solid defensive game plan. They were able to get to Russ, frustrate him. They, they played good coverage. Uh, We saw some fun things from Russ though. We saw a QB sneak touchdown. If you want to look back and find the last time that happened, good luck because it's not something that has happened very often. It was very clearly a designed play too. The Seahawks went out. They had one running back. They had a lot of guys out wide. It made the made the Bills force them to bring guys out of the box, which allowed Russ to just sneak in behind center Ethan Pochick. One of those things that we haven't seen from Brian Schottenheimer. We haven't seen from Coach Pete Carroll in a really long time. Russ, obviously a very talented runner, but not really a big bruiser, not a guy who does a lot of those types of plays. But that was something that I liked seeing. I'm glad that other teams who are watching tape now realize, well, we got to be prepared for a potential rust sneak. It's just one more thing that they have to worry about. We saw the incredible throw from Russell to David Moore, one of my favorite plays in garbage time. Arguably didn't matter, although it did bring the Seahawks a little bit closer to making their comeback. But he was scrambling. He was on one foot, almost in the air completely when he let go of that ball. 55 yards down the field, hit David Moore right in the chest for a touchdown. Fantastic play from Russ. It wasn't his best game. I don't think there's any debate about that. He also got knocked down 16 times. That is the most times that any quarterback has been knocked down 
by any this entire season. Point blank, Russell Wilson got knocked down more times than any quarterback in 2020. That's not overly surprising. The Seahawks, like I said, their pass rush has improved, but it's not great. They they passed the ball a lot in this game because they were down behind the sticks really early, and you know it's it's just one of those things where it kind of culminated in just a, a game that it's hard for Russ to get into a rhythm. It's hard for him to do what he's capable of doing when he's getting knocked down every drive virtually, which is what happened in this one. But I think the main point that I want to make here and that I've seen from select people that is frustrating when you hear it is that Russell Wilson, you cannot expect him to be perfect or very, very close to perfect every single game in order for you to win. You need to be able to win games with your quarterback playing poorly. And in the past, the Seahawks have been able to do that to the point where <laughs> they won a Super Bowl on the back of a very talented Russell Wilson, but he wasn't near the quarterback he is now. Of course, that team was built defensively. They had the, the infamous Legion of Boom with Earl Thomas, Cam Chancellor, Richard Sherman, and they didn't need Russ to be elite. They, he basically just handed the ball off to Marshawn Lynch, occasionally found Doug Baldwin, Jermaine Curse, called it a day. And that that defense is nowhere close to the level that the Seahawks have to the point where now, especially in a game without Chris Carson or Carlos Hyde, a game where their running backs were rookie DJ Dallas, second-year man Travis Homer, and Alex Collins signed off the practice squad, who was activated for the first time in well over a year. When you have that in your running back room, and when you have a defense that is league-leading awful, and you have elite wide receivers in DK Metcalf and Tyler Lockett, Russ is going to throw the ball a lot, and he has to be perfect. And the thing is, for the last year and a half, he pretty much has been. You know, it's crazy. I could do a whole segment about how insane it is that Russell Wilson has not gotten a vote for MVP, but you all know that. You know how insane that is that Russell Wilson has not gotten that attention yet. But the problem is this team is just so reliant on him being good. Not good, great. He can be good, and they can lose. They can lose to not very good teams. In this game, Russ threw for 390 yards. His completion rate was pretty good. It wasn't great. It was pretty good. He also threw for two touchdowns, but he had two interceptions. He had a couple fumbles that I would argue weren't necessarily his fault, and he just had no help from anybody else. The run game didn't get off the ground. They handed the ball to DJ Dallas seven times. He gained 31 yards. One of them was a touchdown. That's great. He was right at the line, but he scored. Travis Homer got the ball six times for 16 yards. That's just not getting it done. And after that, Alex Collins, like I said, freshly activated for the first time in a while. He got the ball two times for five yards. One of them was an eight-yard gain. One of them, if you want to do some math for me, was a negative three-yard loss. So just, I mean, you can't ask anybody on the planet to, to try to lead a team to victory when their defense is going to give up, is just going to play back, play soft, allow the opposing quarterback to move the ball with ease, wear out the defense, and your offense is going to not have NFL running backs, to be perfectly frank. I think DJ Dallas is a good player, and I think he's a fine third or fourth running back, but he's not a top guy. Travis Homer has proven that he's not a top guy. He's a good special teams player. He's proven to be a capable pass blocker, at least last year. He struggled in that area this year, whereas Dallas has kind of picked up the slack there. But that's a, that's it. Those guys are special teamers. And third down backs, backup third down backs, to be perfectly honest. And so when you have those guys leading the charge on, behind Russell Wilson, when you have 
a defense that is just willing to stay on the, for, on the field forever because they're not actually trying to – when you can't rush the quarterback and you can't guard the receivers, like I know that that's not exactly elite-level analysis for you all, but that's what we saw in this game is we saw a Seahawks team that was unwilling to they, – they're incapable of generating pressure on the quarterback. That's been a, an issue for them for a year and a half. They know that. They went into this game knowing, hey, even though Josh Allen is maybe not the most mobile quarterback that we're going to play – we're probably not going to put a lot of pressure on him. And then you capitalize on that by saying, well, let's play soft zone. Let's play two, a, a, a cornerback who has very little NFL experience and then a cornerback who's playing on a, a hurt knee. Let's play soft zone and allow Buffalo to get easy, quick completions. What do you think is going to happen? <laughs> They're going to go for that every single time. They're going to beat cornerbacks around the edge because Dunbar's knee was banged up. And that's what happened is they were just able to move the ball way too efficiently. Yards after a catch were way too common. Your safeties were extremely taxed in this game. And it just, it, it was a predictable kind of situation for this team to be in. Tack on all of that. And you have a special teams unit that just didn't really do their job. The opening play was a huge kickoff return that set them up perfectly to score their opening touchdown. That You can't get behind the sticks that early. And special teams haven't been a huge issue for the Seahawks this year. This was a bit of an anomaly to see them struggle in this regard. But it just added to, to what was a pretty disastrous East Coast early morning game. You know, we, that, that's been a narrative around the Seahawks for a long time is that they struggle in these 10 a.m. starts in the East Coast, that it's kind of unfair to these teams who lose time when they go over there. It hadn't been an issue for the last couple of years. I saw it coming up a lot when I was covering the team and thought, well, it never seems like they lose those games. I don't know why this is such a big storyline, but it's crept back because of this game. There was a lot more to it than just a 10 a.m. game in Buffalo, New York, especially when it was 68 degrees and sunny while it was 35 here in Seattle. Kind of a weird dynamic there, but this is just one of those games where, where the Seahawks have some very glaring holes. And I think it starts with the defensive coordinator. That's kind of what I want to talk about here is I rarely, I don't think I've ever strongly advocated for somebody to lose their job. It's not really my style. I don't like, uh, <laughs> I don't like encouraging that. I think it's kind of a, a borderline rude thing to suggest, but at the same time, coaches, you know, they're, they're under a high level of scrutiny. And if you're not performing, you kind of, you, you pick this field, this career, knowing that you're going to get a lot of criticism. And in this situation, Ken Norton, the defensive coordinator for the Seahawks, He's shown he's pretty unwilling to change and make make adaptations and, in fact, helps. And I don't know how much of a role he has here, and I want to talk about that in a bit, but they, they, they're they trying to build a personnel around a outdated defensive concept with the 4-3 defense. They've run more nickel this year. They've run some other stuff. But at the soul of this defense is tons of linebackers, and it hasn't really helped them. They, the cover three that they ran a lot with the uh, – Legion of Boom was fantastic because of Earl Thomas. You know, yes, Cam was great. Yes, Richard was great. But they could run a cover three with that high safety because Earl Thomas is literally a Hall of Famer, an elite player for his career. That was such a crucial part of that. And they had great linebackers, obviously, Bobby Wagner and K.J. Wright, who are still on this team today. But now they're drafting linebackers like Jordan Brooks. They're going after, you know, they signed Michael Kendricks to be a big part of the defense for the last couple of seasons. They drafted Cody Barton and Ben Burkirvan last year. They're really, really focused on having a very linebacker-heavy defense, and it hasn't worked. I mean, it it, it point-blank hasn't worked. Bobby Wagner's a future Hall of Famer. He's been elite. 
He had one of the best games I've ever seen him play against San Francisco at age 30. He's a fantastic player. But that you you don't need to build a defense around a middle linebacker when the especially when the rest of your personnel just isn't there. You know, healthy Quentin Dunbar is good, but I don't think he's good enough to play this defense. And, and Shaquille Griffin, yes, he's good, but you know, and, and Trey Flowers played well in this game and he played okay in this game. But it's just one of those things where you're just you you Norton's style isn't going to change as long as he's still the coach. And I don't it's not conducive to winning in the NFL, at least not winning at the stage that this team wants to win at. Now, having said that, it's probably I think some people, some people know this who are who follow the team a little bit more closely, but Pete Carroll's got his hands pretty deep in this defense and in the offense, frankly. He's been around for a very long time. He's obviously had tons of success. He's now going to be around through 2025. He signed an extension with the team on Sunday, for those of you who did not see that. But what Norton is doing has a lot to do with what Pete Carroll wants to do. And I think that's an important thing to know. I think that when the Seahawks hire coordinators because of Carroll's expertise, because of his longevity and, and just importance to the organization, he has a big say in who they bring in. And he's well aware of how he can bring in guys who are going to do what he wants to do, who are going to implement his plan. Pete does not bring in guys who are going to contradict him. Daryl Bevel didn't contradict him. He finally got the ax. They brought in Brian Schottenheimer. Brian Schottenheimer doesn't really contradict him. Now, this year they've thrown the ball a lot more, and I'm curious how much of that has been Schottenheimer pushing back on Pete or if it's been because of injuries to their running backs or just because of how good Russell Wilson is. There's lots of reasons that that could and is happening. But with Norton, Pete likes the 4-3. Pete likes the defense that won him a Super Bowl. You can't really blame him for that. But they don't have that personnel anymore. And the league has changed. 2012-2013 wasn't that long ago, but it was long enough ago that things are different. When Matt Schaub can carve you up for 460 yards like he did last year because they have these vertical schemes and they have these ability to move the ball efficiently and easily by going out wide and you have a bunch of linebackers on the field who just can't get out there. It's a problem. And I'm not saying firing Ken Norton is going to be a a bad thing, but I'm also not saying it's going to solve the problem because Pete Carroll is going to be here for another five years. He's going to coach this team for as long as he is capable. And I don't think that's a bad thing either, but but somebody needs to adjust. And Norton's not going to do it as long as he's reporting to Pete. And Pete, I'm frankly, I'm not sure if he's going to do it. Now, that was a common, common thought about Pete Carroll and the offense for a very long time. Will Schottenheimer's not throwing the ball because Pete doesn't want him to throw the ball, and they're just going to not let Russell do anything until the fourth quarter. Hashtag let Russ cook the phrase that we saw for years and years on Seahawks Twitter. And then they did. They made adjustments. Brian Schottenheimer, every time he throws the ball on first down, he isn't doing it as a big middle finger to Pete Carroll. He isn't going against what Pete Carroll wants. They decided to change things up. I think Russ had a lot to do that as well. And I think that that's maybe something that's going to be a bit problematic because, frankly, the equivalent of Russell Wilson on Seattle's defense is Bobby Wagner. And if Ken Norton and Pete Carroll go to Bobby Wagner and say, hey, we're thinking about running more – defensive schemes that involve less linebackers going away from the base defense. Bobby Wagner's not going to agree with that. (laughs) That's not his sentiment. And with these teams last few drafts with Cody Barton coming in with Jordan Brooks coming in with Ben Brookhurvin around as well, this team is built to be linebacker heavy. 
with Bruce Irvin playing the Leo when he was healthy. Now Carlos Dunlap's going to play the Leo position. They are willing to bet and, and are actively trying to pursue as many linebackers as possible because this is the defense they believe will win them a championship. And I don't agree. I, it hasn't proven to be able to do that except for one season when they had multiple Hall of Famers on their defense and a Hall of Famer in the running back room. So, yeah, I think that there's some reason for pessimism at this point for the Seahawks. I also think that people who thought after the first few games that this team was absolutely, without a doubt, the best team in the NFC and going to win a Super Bowl, those people were probably a bit ambitious because even in the first few games, even when the Seahawks did roll through teams, they they were giving up a lot of points. They were giving up a lot of yards. Their defense never, again, this isn't a one-off thing. This is a thing that has been happening throughout the season. And frankly, it's a thing that was talked about a ton over the offseason. That's something, too, that the narrative was that the Seahawks need to address the pass rush. And they just, they didn't. There's not really any other way to put it. Sure, they got Carlos Dunlap now. And sure, this season, they have dealt with a season-ending injury to Bruce Irvin, who was going to be a big part of that mix. They've dealt with a suspension to Demontre Moore, which puts him out of action. They dealt with an injury to Rasheem Green. But at the end of the day, they did not do enough to address this pass rush. They drafted Daryl Taylor in the second round, a guy who they hoped would be a big part of their pass rush. But they drafted him when he was coming off an injury, and he's not healthy, <laughs> and he may not play this year. There's a very real possibility that he just doesn't get to suit up, misses an entire year. They were counting a ton on LJ Collier to take a step forward. He's not worse than he was last year, but the step that I think they were hoping for, we just haven't quite seen it there. But what we didn't see, we didn't see this team re-sign Jadavion Clowney. And I know that Jadavion Clowney didn't have a great season for the Seahawks. He only had three sacks. He was dealing with injuries. We know that he was asking for a lot over the offseason. It was a big saga. There was a whole lot going on and a lot more going on behind the scenes that we didn't see about. But at the end of the day, they didn't sign him. And they didn't sign Everson Griffin, who, again, also hasn't really had a great start to his season, his first outside of Minnesota, and since he was at USC with Coach Pete Carroll. But Griffin had been traded from the Cowboys back to the Lions, so the Seahawks had multiple opportunities to acquire Griffin. They never did. They didn't make a push for Yannick Nagakoui, who was on the Jaguars. They didn't make a push for Matthew Judon. They didn't even sign Clay Matthews, who's still available. Matthews had eight sacks last year for the Rams. Now, his eight sacks with the Rams were likely a product of scheme, for the Los Angeles Rams defense and also the fact that offensive linemen had to focus very intensely on Aaron Donald, which allows a guy like Matthews who's playing off the edge to come in and wreak havoc and, and get some sacks. So I'm not saying that, that Matthews getting eight sacks means he would have come in and immediately got eight sacks with the Seahawks, but hell, they could have signed him. They could have gave him a shot, you know, especially when Bruce went down, maybe they called Matthews hasn't signed. It's possible. He's just done. He's not interested in playing anymore. I don't know that situation there. That's a lot of names. And there was a lot of other names, a lot more than just that, that the Seahawks didn't pursue. Now there's one more. Tack McKinley, former first round pick from the Atlanta Falcons in 2017. He was the 26th overall pick. He has been waived or he will be waived. It is not official as of this conversation, but they are going to waive him. He will be on waivers on Wednesday. Guy with 17 and a half career sacks. He's only got one of them this year in four games, but had six sacks his, his rookie year, seven sacks in, as a 23-year-old in 2018. Obviously, very high-profile guy, came out of UCLA. 
every team, or maybe not every team, but a lot of teams are going to be very interested in bringing him in. So I think that the Seahawks might not even win him on waivers if they do put a claim in, but it's another opportunity for them to get better. And with more on the shelf, with Taylor on the shelf, with Irvin on the shelf, with Dunlap seemingly adjusting quite well to his new team, at least in his first game, why not try to add somebody else? Why not get more depth there? And yeah, they need to address the secondary too. They need more depth there. They can keep activating Jason Stanley off the practice squad. They can keep that now they can switch to Gavin Heslop since Stanley would be have to pass through waivers if you got sent back down again. You know, Ryan Neal has been a nice little revelation for them in the secondary as well, but they the depth there is just is not what it needs to be. And they've you know, obviously injuries have been a factor there, but this is a team that just at this point right now, the defense is not good enough and they had opportunities to make it better. And they, they just didn't, <laughs> it just, it didn't happen. And, you know, there's, there's, there's still reasons to be opt- optimistic. You know, I think Dunlap is is certainly a reason to be optimistic beyond that. Uh, Quentin Dunbar is likely going to get better, not, not just on the field, but physically he's going to get better. And once his knee heals and he gets more used to Seattle's defense, I think that he will be a better football player. Rasheem Green is back. That's a big one. I think he led the team in sacks last year. He's a guy that I think could really be a, a factor this year. Obviously, Shaq coming back is going to be huge because that secondary just looked really, really bad without him. But and and you know they have Jamal Adams has been good. We talked about the struggles of the secondary, but Adams has been solid when he's healthy. Obviously, he's had the injuries as well. I love watching him blitz. That's been really fun. <laughs> he had another good game. He had one and a half sacks against the Bills. He's kind of taken on that Michael Kendricks role. They play different positions, but. He, he's the, the primary blitzer who uh, wreaks havoc when he does that. And I think that's been super fun to see. Again, that's a bit of a, a shift the Seahawks have made. So they do make slight adjustments on defense. Pete Carroll is not quite as curmudgeon with his defense, but this is a small change and one that ultimately hasn't had a massive impact other than a few really fun kind of highlight real plays. And then, of course, offensively, Chris Carson and Carlos Hyde. Just getting one of those guys back is going to be massive. It's going to be super huge uh, just to have a more established running back, a power back like Carson. You know, Collins is, is a bit of a power back, but he wasn't ready to have a big role in the offense. I think one of my favorite plays from this entire game against Buffalo was Collins picking up a, with a really, really nice blitz pickup. I wish I could have pulled up the video ahead of time because it was a really nice play that saved Russ from a very, very he was going to get blindsided from behind and sacked pretty hard. And Collins came in and picked it up. And, and that's something that's really hard for a guy who just picked up the offense to be able to do. So I like him and I'm happy he's around, but I'm not counting on him to be a big part of the actual running game, especially once Carson and Hyde, or at least one of them are back in the mix. And then of course, there's always the possibility. We don't know yet, but if Josh Gordon can get into the mix, get his suspension lifted, come back, play for the Seahawks, be a, really good number three receiver behind Lockett and Metcalf, maybe a number four receiver because of the excellent season that we've seen out of David Moore so far this year. Uh, Again, adding depth at wide receiver is not going to fix Seattle's porous defense. It's not going to fix the offensive line. It's not going to fix the fact that defenses aren't planning around their running game because Carson and Hyde are hurt, but it gives them another weapon. It gives them another guy that can move the chains. He was a first down machine in his few games with the Seahawks last season you know, it forces defensive backs to pay a little bit more attention to this guy instead of the, you know, Penny Hart and other guys that we've seen in that role this year. 
It replaces Philip Dorsett, who appears very likely like he's going to miss the entire season after signing this year away from the New England Patriots. So reinforcements are sort of on the way in the way of some guys who are going to get healthy and, and play in the next couple of weeks and potentially a guy like Gordon. But, you know, if they don't sign Tack McKinley, if they don't find another way to get better, which you can always can. Pete Carroll always says to always compete. And we've seen the Seahawks team be willing to add players after the trade deadline. Josh Gordon is a prime example of that. And if they can find ways to make this roster better, even though the deadline already passed, we could see them in a position where maybe they do make some noise. You know, maybe they win a game or two in the playoffs. I'm, I think that there's some pretty big things that would need to change or a lot of luck <laughs> in the playoffs in order for them to make a Super Bowl run. They're very talented. Russell Wilson's the best quarterback on the planet. DK Metcalf and Tyler Lockett's probably the best one-two receiver combination in the league. The offensive line is slightly better. Bobby Wagner is a Hall of Famer. But at the end of the day, the holes that we saw in this roster in May, in March, even in the early stages of the offseason, are still there. And they weren't filled. And that is something that Seahawks fans kind of have to sit with, unfortunately, that there was ways that they could have made this roster better in the way in the areas that they needed to fix. And for whatever reason, they didn't do it. And now you're looking at a team that gives up 44 points to the Bills. You know, Josh Allen looks like an MVP candidate against them. And that's frustrating. And that's kind of hard for, for Seahawks fans to take. And hopefully things will get better in week 10 so that we don't have this salty feeling in our mouth for the rest of the week. All right, so I'm going to take another quick break. But when I return, I will answer a handful of questions submitted by users to close out the show. Stay tuned. You're listening to the Pacific Northwest Sports Radio Show on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. All right, welcome back. Needed a bit of water after that lengthy conversation about the Seattle Seahawks. Transitioning away, I got a handful of questions from fans either before or during the show, and I'm hoping to be able to answer to all of them at some point for this one. We'll see if we get to all of them. The first question is a pivot away from the Seahawks to Seattle's one of Seattle's other professional sports team, the Mariners. As many of you probably know, the Mariners rookie outfielder Kyle Lewis was named the 2020 American League Rookie of the Year today on Monday. The question is, will a Mariner win the award again in 2021? So this is pretty clearly, I would imagine, referring to a Mariners outfielder, Jared Kalanick, who many are hoping will make his major league debut in 2021. I know many were hoping he would make his debut in 2020 as well towards the end of the season, much like Lewis did in 2019 when he played 18 games for the Mariners before exploding as their starting center fielder last year in the abbreviated season. So I think Kellenick is not the only guy who could potentially do it. I think Taylor Trammell, who the Mariners acquired from the San Diego Padres at the trade deadline in the big seven-player trade with Austin Nola, he's an option as well. He's a couple years older than Kellenick, who's just turned 21. Trammell is 23, also plays outfield. I think it's perhaps more likely that he comes up before Kellenick. But right now, the Mariners have what looks like a, a full outfield. Lewis is going to play center field. Mitch Hanniger is returning from his injury that's cost him nearly two full seasons. He will be back and play right field. And then they have a, a bevy of options who could play left field. They could play Jake Fraley there. They could play Dylan Moore there, who had an outstanding season last year. They could play Braden Bishop there. They could play Phil Irvin there. They could play Taylor Trammell there. That's certainly an option too. So they have they have a lot of guys they could play. Uh, I think 
that Kellenic is probably a guy who I just in order to win rookie of the year, you probably need to debut at the start of the season. Now, in a 60 game year, that was absolutely the case. It would be really, really difficult to win the rookie of the year if you only played half of the season. Now, for Kellenic, if he comes up in April, let's say, and plays the majority of the season, and April, I pick April specifically because that passes the Super 2 deadline where the Mariners would then get an extra year of team control on his contract. So if he comes up on like April 15th or so and plays as well as many Mariners fans and prospect lovers and general fans of baseball hope that he does in his first season, then yeah, I think it's entirely possible that Kyle Lewis could be the rookie of the year. Or excuse me, Jared Kelnick could be the rookie of the year. But if he doesn't, if he doesn't come up till later, I think it's entirely possible. I'm curious how teams are, are viewing this lost season. Minor leaguers did not play in 2020 in organized games against opponents. They played in scrimmage games throughout the year at their home place for the Mariners. It was in Tacoma, Washington, their alternate site. And, and for Kellenick, you know, he got to face really talented pitching. He got to face Logan Gilbert. He got to face George Kirby, briefly got to face Emerson Hancock. So I think that, you know, he got a lot of experience and he got some game play, but it's tough to know whether that whether the Mariners and whether other teams are going to view that as much as they would view just a, a regular minor league season. Like I think if Kellenick played a full season in the minor leagues in 2020, A, he probably would have made his major league debut. And if not, he would be a, a very strong candidate to be on the opening day roster very soon after. But now we just had a year where we didn't really get to see him. As fans, we didn't get to see him hardly at all. The Mariners certainly watched him and they got to see him in these scrimmage games, but it's hard to weigh that against, you know, traveling every weekend and facing a ton of different pitchers, you know, facing 60, 70, 80, 90 different pitchers in a season as opposed to facing the same 15 or 20 guys, which is what happened this year. So I don't know how the Mariners are going to view that. I don't know whether they're going to be willing to give him a super early call-up. He is still very young. He didn't exactly light the league on fire when he was at high A, a brief time at double A. He was good, but he wasn't elite necessarily. So it just it kind of just depends. And then kind of looking forward from there, there's going to be a fair amount of competition for the American League Rookie of the Year Award in 2021. I think you look at Detroit has outstanding pitching prospects and Casey Mize and Tarek Skubal, which is a shout out to Seattle University, where he went to college. Uh, Matt Manning, potentially as well. Uh, you, you know, you see a guy like Ryan Mountcastle, who played for the Orioles this last season. He's still prospect and rookie eligible. He was fantastic. He hit 350 in about a month of action for the Baltimore Orioles, assuming he has a full-time role and starts in March. This is also assuming the baseball season starts in March, which may be a bit ambitious, but that's maybe a conversation for another day. But if a guy like Jared Kellenick, or excuse me, if a guy like Ryan Mountcastle, a guy like Casey Mize, a guy like Nick Madrigal, shout out Oregon State Baseball, but Nick Madrigal is going to be prospect eligible as well, and he's going to be the starting second baseman for the White Sox. If those guys play you know, 160 games or something like that, and Kellenick doesn't come up until April, his numbers are going to need to be demonstrably better than those guys in order to win the Rookie of the Year. Now, he's better <laughs> than all of those players. What we've seen out of Jared Kellenick even before his trade from the Mets to the Mariners, and since then certainly, is a guy who's potentially very elite, potentially a you know, 12, 15 time all-star caliber player. That's not, in my opinion, a remotely uh, controversial even thing to say. I think he's going to be that good, or at least has a real possibility of being that good. But winning the rookie of the year is oftentimes a product of good timing, of luck, of other players around you. You know, uh, Kyle Lewis had a fantastic season. Uh, 
but normally in a normal season, I think a guy like Luis Robert would probably win this one pretty easily, the White Sox outfielder. But he struggled down the stretch. And when you struggle for a few weeks, as most rookies do, that can be forgiven in a 162-game season. But Robert struggled for three weeks in his eight-week season. That's enough. That's enough to down him and enough for Kyle Lewis to not only win the Rookie of the Year, but win it unanimously. He got all 30 first-place votes. And Robert got 27 second place votes. So he was, it was a one, two race between those two guys. And so I think, you know, you're looking at a little bit of luck has to go Kellenick's way. Uh, he has to get promoted at the right time, which may or may not happen. And you need guys like Mountcastle and Mize and then like really high profile names, specifically Wander Franco, who's the number one prospect in all of baseball has been for a full year. He's you know with the Tampa Bay Rays. He's very young as well, but the Rays have, been willing to promote prospects somewhat aggressively in the past. And the guy is absolutely elite. I mean, is a five tool potential superstar waiting to happen. And so if he comes up early and the Rays play him every day, which is something the Rays have been unwilling to do in the past with so much, they just do a lot of platooning, but you know, it's just, it's a, it's a tricky to predict whether Jared Kalanick will be the rookie of the year because of this. I don't think it'll be anybody else. I like Taylor Trammell. I think he's going to be a good baseball player but I don't think that he's rookie of the year type guy. Julio Rodriguez is still a year away. Noel V. Marte is probably two years away. Uh, Justice Sheffield is no longer rookie eligible. I was kind of shocked that he did not get any support for the rookie of the year. There was, I think, seven players who got at least one third place vote. Uh, Jesus Lazardo from the Oakland A's and Brady Singer from the Kansas City Royals were both among them, as well as James Karinchak, a rookie reliever for the Cleveland Indians. And I think Justice Sheffield had a better year than all of them. He had a higher war, which in a 60-game season is a bit tough to utilize the same way that you would over a full 162. But still, I think that Sheffield probably deserved a little bit more love. But regardless, he will not be eligible for Rookie of the Year next year, so it doesn't really matter. Justin Dunn is not going to be eligible next year. LJ Newsom will be, but is not really a prime candidate to be a Rookie of the Year type guy. Uh, Cal Rowley is the Mariners' catching prospect. I love Cal Rally. I've loved him for a very long time. I think he has the potential to be a very, very good power hitting young catcher. Don't see him as a potential rookie of the year candidate. All right. Last question of the show before we close things out. Long-term, who will be a better NFL quarterback, Gardner Minshew or Jake Luton? Yeah. So Washington State and Oregon State not only played each other in the first game of the Pac-12 season, their quarterbacks are now in a competition with each other as well, or their, excuse me, their NFL quarterbacks. Gardner Minshew, very famous for his epic mustache and overall aesthetic, while as the quarterback for the Washington State Cougars, he is now the quarterback for the Jacksonville Jaguars, sixth-round pick who ended up getting a starting job and did extremely well in his rookie year, hasn't been quite as good this year, and then is now suffering a leg injury. So they went to their backup quarterback, another sixth-round pick from the Pac-12, Jake Luton from the Oregon State Beavers. And Luton had a really, really good first game. He looked really good. And it's kind of begged the question of, A, how in the hell the Jaguars know how to pick up sixth-round picks from not very good Pac-12 schools and turn them into bona fide NFL starters because that's a recipe that a lot of NFL teams are going to want to figure out how to do that and get that success out of it. And then, B, which one of them is going to be the starter going forward? Coach Doug Maroney was pretty unwilling to commit to anything at this point. He basically said, right now I'm, I'm worried about the loss that we just suffered. I'm worried about Minshew's leg. He can't, he's not going to be ready for a couple of weeks. So Luton's the guy for right now. We'll deal with that when we get there, which is an understandable reaction from a coach. I don't think that you could really expect 
him to say, yeah, no, Luton's the guy, which would just be frustrating for Minshew and his, you know, posse and everything. And, and if you say, Hey, like, you know, Luton's definitely not the guy Minshew gets the job back right away when he comes back. Well, that's not really a message you want to send to your young quarterback, especially after he had such a good game. But I think if I had to make a guess here, I've kind of gerrymandered the question a little bit, but I think Minshew probably he's got a bit better arm. He has more experience, obviously, at this point, which may not matter in the long term, but in the short term, I think will help him. Uh, he just seems to he you know he came from an offense where the air raid is not exactly what Jacksonville runs, but he has a lot of experience reading defenses and throwing the ball down the field. And and Luton comes from an offense that does a little bit more is a bit more balanced and certainly has more of a running game. So I think he's got a little bit less experience reading opposing defenses. Uh, Luton can use his legs probably more than Minshew can, and that will help him. We saw him scamper into the end zone. He looked really good doing that. So I think I'm going with Minshew as more of a gut pick than anything else. I would need to do a bit more digging into these guys to give you a more concrete answer, but from reading a few articles and just kind of seeing them a lot in college and seeing Minshew at least a lot in the NFL, I think, I think they're both probably guys who are like low end starters slash high quality backups. Like I don't think that either of them are going to hold down an NFL starting quarterback position for their career. You Minshew has done it up to this point and obviously his competition currently is Luton. So he may continue to hold it if he can outplay him. But I think at the end of the day, they're guys who are fillers. You know, they're quarterbacks for a team that maybe is looking to then draft a quarterback the next season or like just really, really good backups who can be counted on to be reliable, steady offensive contributors if the starting quarterback gets injured or has to come out of a game or or whatever. So that's I think they're both in a similar boat in that regard. Neither of these guys are franchise quarterbacks. Neither of these guys are, you know, Pro Bowl candidates or MVP candidates. Neither of these guys are probably top half quarterbacks in the NFL over a full season. I think that the best case scenario for Minshew would be like maybe between the 10th and 15th best quarterback in the NFL. So maybe sneak into that top half conversation. But Luton, I think, is is probably a similar. That, that would be a really high peak for him. More likely he's like not the worst starting quarterback in the NFL, but maybe not among the best either. Just a guy who is capable of getting it done and can use his legs a little bit, can lead an offense and not be too mistake prone, but overall not just quite good enough, I guess, for lack of a better term, to really like kind of pop and and wow teams and, and lead a, a Jacksonville team that is good and has some, or is okay and has some talent around him, but probably not, neither of these guys are good enough to really lead this team to any super high level uh, results at the end of the season. All right. I will save my final question for the next episode. So that is going to do it for me today. Thank you so much for tuning into episode one, whether you were here the whole time, part of the time, whether you are listening to this afterwards in one of the video packages put together by the worldwide sports radio network, either way, I really appreciate it. I'm really looking forward to doing these every week. Mondays from 7 to 9 p.m. Pacific time every week. Uh, Stay tuned for next week for our second episode, which will feature another outstanding guest. And him and I will be discussing the upcoming NBA draft, which will be about three or four days after my next episode. We'll have takes on the Portland Trailblazers, what they should do with pick 16 and pick 46 in the draft, as well as the two University of Washington stars, Jaden McDaniels and Isaiah Stewart and some thoughts on other local potential second-round gems in Killian Tilly from Gonzaga, Peyton Pritchard, 
from the University of Oregon, CJ Ellaby from Washington State, and Trace Tinkle from Oregon State. All here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. It's the Worldwide Sports Radio Network.